Hello and welcome to today's episode. I will be speaking to Professor Andrew Singoni on aortic stenosis, how TAVI, T-A-V-I, is revolutionizing management. Professor Singoni, tell us about yourself. Hi, David, and thanks for asking me to be here today. So I'm a cardiologist. I'm not an interventional cardiologist. I'm not a structural cardiologist. Um, I, I have a subspecialty in heart fair, but I'm what I'd like to call a humble suburban cardiologist. So I do a lot of general cardiology where I see patients with um, uh, cardiovascular disease or patients with risk factors or patients who are referred with a heart murmur, things like that. So um, I don't uh, sit in a cath lab all day. I think it's really important because as general practitioners, uh, you guys often see patients, you just want to send along to a cardiologist for an opinion regarding something you might have found clinically or to try and reduce cardiovascular risk. This is the clinical takeaway from HealthEd, interviewing leading medical experts on important topics that can positively impact the way you practice. Here's your host and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Andrew, whenever you mention cardiovascular risk, the mind jumps to ischemic events. And I'm so glad you mentioned the word murmurs because we do see our fair share of murmurs and sometimes we know what to do about it and sometimes we don't. So why don't we talk about a specific cause of murmurs today? It's aortic stenosis. So Andrew, it's over to you. Aortic stenosis is a really important condition and it's, it's actually quite common. So the sort of symptoms that come with aortic stenosis are really quite non-specific. Maybe it's just chest pain or tightness, uh, reduced physical activity, uh, palpitations, maybe feeling faint or um, fainting on exertion. Uh, fatigue, shortness of breath. So these people uh, may have a history of uh, congenital heart defects or rheumatic fever when they're younger, or maybe had radiotherapy their chest for breast cancer or lung cancer or um, lymphoma, and or just just because they're older. And the, the risk factors include in older people are hypertension, diabetes, smoking, chronic kidney disease, uh, coronary artery disease. And the important thing is that it's only quite late that people start getting symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so once they start getting the symptoms and the, the primary symptoms of severe aortic stenosis are chest pain, shortness of breath or syncope. Once those things start to happen, it's a really bad thing. And the prognosis can be worse than most cancers. So um, metastatic cancer. So it's, it's a really serious thing. The important thing you said quite, quite importantly there earlier, David, is that this is actually a lot more common than we think. For example, in 2021, uh, in Australia, there are thought to be between 500 and 600,000 people who have valvular heart disease, and the majority of those have not been recognised. And that's expected to grow to almost a million by 2051. So that's a lot of people. Andrew, are these all patients with significant, if you like, valvular abnormalities how do we know? Um, I mean, this is a huge number. So every GP would be seeing quite a few of these patients. That's really important. In fact, um, the prevalence does increase with aging and one in eight people over the age of 75 years uh, will be affected by aortic stenosis. So we have this, um, uh, this thing we say, which is um, suspect, listen, refer. So that's really important. So you see someone who's over 75, haven't listened to their heart for a long time, listen to their heart and listen for a murmur. If you hear a murmur and uh, you know, you're concerned enough, refer them on either to a, a cardiologist or if you have the availability um, for an echocardiogram. And remember, the sort of murmur you hear in aortic stenosis is a crescendo, decrescendo murmur. But these six 
signs of severity of aortic stenosis. And you know, how does a smart heart specialist say, oh, the severe aortic stenosis, hmm, sounds like a murmur to me. It's the length of the murmur, the lateness of the peak, the presence of a fourth heart sound, a soft aortic component of the second heart sound, uh, the presence of a thrill, uh, a low volume slow stroke carotid pulse, and a narrow pulse pressure. So the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure is less than 40. The more of those signs you have, the more likely the aortic stenosis is to be severe. So they're the sorts of things that we think about. But uh, probably in Australia, there'd be um, you know, that number's growing all the time. Uh, the people with aortic stenosis. So if you don't think about it, you may be missing it. And these are people that 50% of people with untreated aortic stenosis will die within two years after they get symptoms. So this is something we've really got to think about. That, that is a terrible prognosis by any stretch of imagination, Andrew. And we certainly don't want to pick them up when they've got thrills and all sorts of uh, obvious issues like syncope. So I'm, I'm going to go back to square one, Andrew. So I've heard a patient, uh, they've never been investigated, and I've just heard a murmur. I don't hear murmurs. I mean, I'm not very good at classifying murmurs, so everything you describe, I remember sitting for an exam and writing those things down. The number of times I've actually felt a thrill with all these things that you've described is not huge. So my experience is not much to lean on. So what do I do when I hear a murmur in someone aged over 75? Just refer? You can either refer to see a cardiologist or um, if you have the availability, uh, order an echocardiogram. The echocardiogram is the gold standard test. Mm -hmm. What about for younger patients? I, I think it's it's similar because we can be fooled, as you say, and, and there, I've got no problems with someone referring me a patient with uh, with a murmur saying, what do you think? Because the two, the two best things are, like I said, an echocardiogram and having a cardiologist listen to their heart. But an echocardiogram can tell you a lot more information just than about the valve, you know, left ventricular function, left ventricular hypertrophy, uh, pericardial disease, uh, the size of the atria, uh, pulmonary hypertension, uh, mitral valve disease, all those sorts of things. So an echo is a, a lovely test, non-invasive, easy to do. And... I think it's a it's a good thing to do uh, if a patient's young, just to make sure that they don't have other things going on. So we might you know, look into their lipids, uh, ask them about arrhythmias, all sorts of things. So I think uh, if you hear a murmur, it may be a sign that something's going on. So uh, as I said earlier, um, suspect, listen, refer. Andrew, one of the problems we used to have in the past is that even though um, the patient may be diagnosed um, with aortic stenosis, the number of times they've been returned for careful monitoring because um, surgery and intervention is a big deal and the outcomes have huge complications. Um, that's what we think. So we tend not to refer until the patients are symptomatic in some cases. What's the situation now? Oh, really, David, there's been a huge revolution in the last eight to 10 years as far as that's concerned. And, and I was like you, 10 years ago, oh, this patient's too old, too sick, too comorbid, uh, too frail to undergo um, uh, open surgical aortic valve replacement. We'll just manage them conservatively. And unfortunately, as I said, yeah, they have a prognosis worse than most cancers. 50% will be dead in two years. So that's been turned around now. And the reason it's been turned around is by this procedure called TAVI. It's been a real revolution and a life-saving, a life-changing uh, procedure. Uh, Andrew, some of us know what TAVI is. Others may need a bit of a refresher. Uh, would, you, would you like to go through it? 
you're quite right, David. Um, uh, there was a survey actually done by HealthEd of 393 general practitioners, and they found 25% had never heard of TAVI. So let's talk about what it is. T-A-V-I, transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. It's where you um, get a catheter through the uh, femoral artery, you come sailing up through the uh, descending aorta, across the aortic arch into the ascending aorta, and you approach the aortic valve from, uh, from above, put a wire through the aortic valve, and then over that wire, you pass a valve, basically. So it's a, a valve with a balloon in the middle. You blow up the balloon and expands over that aortic stenosis. It opens up the aortic valve, and then you let the balloon down, and um, this metal cage opposes itself against the aortic root. And when you let the balloon down, the valve leaflets come into place like a parachute and uh, Bob's your uncle, you've got a valve. And it's, as, as it sounds, it's non-invasive apart from going through the groin. It's actually not that long, um, yeah, 30, 60 minutes. And uh, it means you don't have to crack someone's chest in half. And it's, it's the patients, you, you see them on the table. One minute they they can't breathe, the next minute they feel better. Suddenly their blood pressure picks up, um, their their pressures in their pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and their pulmonary arterial pressures come down. They start feeling better immediately, and wow. it's 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 just uh, amazing. Andrew, you did mention that in the past there were many uh, contraindications and relative contraindications uh, that we have always been mindful of. What are the patients who should not have this procedure? And conversely, who should have this procedure? So let's uh, answer your second question first. So with any new technology, you have to see how it compares to um, traditional therapy. I'm not going to say it's a gold standard therapy. I'll say it's traditional therapy. So traditional therapy is your surgical aortic valve replacement, what they now call SAVA surgical aortic valve replacement. The Americans call it TAVA, T-A-V-R, uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacement. We call it transcatheter aortic valve implantation, so TAVI. So comparing a TAVI with a surgical operation, they wanted to see, number one, how it compared. So the first patients they did it in were, were patients who were, were really, really sick and, as you say, not suitable for um, a, an operation. So in those patients compared to medical therapy, you know, because they couldn't have an operation, huge improvements in survival. So that was, that was great. That was really sick people who couldn't stand an operation. And, and that study showed that it was safe. It led to big improvements in survival, dramatic improvements in symptoms, reductions in hospitalization, and comparing it overall, cost-effective. So that was, that was what we call a proof of concept study that showed that it can be done in people who otherwise were gonna die. So then that's the first group. The next group that it was tried out in were people who are high risk. So, you know, yes, they can have an operation, but yeah, they're, they're elderly. Um, they're, they're, they've got a, um, a Euro heart score, which is quite high. So they've got a high chance of, uh, of complications from, their, from a thoracotomy, from intubation, from being in intensive care and going on cardiopulmonary bypass. So they randomized those high risk patients to TAVI or surgery and with surgical aortic valve replacement. And again, they found the same thing that was safe, that was effective, and actually had short-term many, 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 many fewer complications than undergoing a surgical aortic valve replacement. So that was really exciting. Mm. But you're going to say, well, why can't everyone have one? Yeah. Because this is not a metal valve. And we know that metal valves last a long time. Um, so if you've got a young person, um, certainly be below the age of 55, 60, you want a metal valve because a metal aortic valve replacement is going to last you 20, you know, 25 years. And if you've got a person who's under 55, 
uh, a tissue valve, you know, in most circumstances, a tissue valve will last you eight, 10, at most 15 years. So um, you've got to consider that. This is a tissue valve basically, but they haven't got really, really long-term data yet because as I say, this sort of technology has only been mainstream eight, 10 years. So the long-term data is probably that it's, it's going to be similar to a surgical tissue valve replacement. So it's not the same as a metal valve, maybe not quite as long as a tissue valve replacement, but it's still pretty good. So in an older person whose prognosis from non-cardiac perspectives is going to be less than 10 years or you know, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're elderly, they've got other comorbidities that might take them out before their heart. This is, this is a perfect procedure. So those are the sorts of people we want to do it. But now let's go back to your first question. Your first question was, who should we not be doing this in? Mm. And this is not one person's decision. That's the beauty of the, the whole way we're approaching this now. We have what's called a heart team. And the heart team is every person who's now being referred for a TAVI or indeed a surgical aortic valve replacement is seen by a heart team. And the heart team involves an interventional structural cardiologist, so the person who does the procedure, an imaging cardiologist, so that's someone who does toes, echoes, and CT scans, mm-hmm. and a geriatrician. And so those people sit down and discuss every patient, and often they see the patients beforehand, mm-hmm. and they will give their opinion. And the surgeons will say, look, this person's perfectly good for an operation. Um, yeah, why don't we go ahead and just do a surgical operation? They'll get a good result. Um, they've got a low operative mortality. And we know the long-term data from surgical aortic valve replacement is very good. And the other two will say, yeah, the geriatrician will say, yeah, I think you can get through an operation. And the, cardio- uh, the cardiologist will say, yep, everything looks good. But in your patients where the surgeon says, look, this patient's got a high surgical risk um, or um, yeah, they've got lung disease particularly, or they've got renal impairment, they've got a lot of calcium there. I don't fancy um, cross-clamping the ascending aorta because there's a high risk of atheromatous debris uh, being embolized to the brain or elsewhere. I think this patient would not do well with a surgical operation. Then they might go ahead and do a TAVI. Then there's those circumstances where there's equipoise, where the patient can go either way. They can go with surgery with a moderate risk, or they can go with TAVI. And then there have, now there have been studies looking at that. And these studies have shown in patients with moderate risk that there is a very similar outcome uh, in the intermediate term with uh, TAVI or with surgery, but surgery has a much higher short-term risk. So the beauty of TAVI, you can go home two days after the procedure. Uh, in, in Canada, they're doing quite a few, same day, in the morning, out late in the afternoon. Wow. But yes, usually people stay one or two nights. So that's that's amazing compared to seven to 10 days in hospital, including a couple of one or two nights in intensive care, that's going to make a huge difference to the healthcare budget. Absolutely. And um, Andrew, I said a question, but all these on Medicare for patients, not with private health fund? That's the problem at the moment. So the valves are expensive. And so certainly for your privately insured patients, um, at the moment, it's it's fairly unlimited. Patients, um, there's short waiting time, and uh, you won't get any arguments from the private health insurance companies because of exactly what I said. The data shows that it's cost effective. Um, as I say, one, one night intensive care is you know, thousands of dollars mm-hmm. and you know, a couple of nights is twice as much. But for these patients, they, they often either spend a short term time in intensive care or just go to coronary care afterwards. Their hospitalization duration is short and um, they're out and about and back to normal living very quickly. So the health insurance companies love it, but the valves are expensive. So um, the, uh, 
I won't say any political things, but up until now, the government has placed limitations on the number of valves that can be put in in public hospitals, mm -hmm. and not all public hospitals are doing it. The numbers are growing, and uh, we're, you know, this is becoming much more mainstream to the point where there was a, um, a study which came out in 2021 called the Partner 3 trial, which uh, looked at low-risk patients. So uh, the Partner 3 trial if I can, can bore you with the details of this, was looking at patients who were low cardiovascular risk and a thousand patients to either uh, transcutaneous aortic valve replacement, mm -hmm. TAVI, or surgery using a bioprosthetic valve. They follow them up for uh, 30 days and then after six months annually, up to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the primary endpoint was all cause mortality, stroke or cardiovascular hospitalization one year post procedure. And what they found that one year, 15.1% of patients randomized to surgery and 8.5% of those undergoing transcutaneous aortic valve replacement had uh, complications. So at one year, the complications in low-risk patients were, were much less with the transcutaneous approach compared to the surgical approach. Also, there were fewer deaths or disabling strokes at one year with TAVI compared to surgery. Uh, that was 1% versus 2.9% one year. That's a 66% that's a, uh, reduction. Wow. And everything else was improved. Quality of life was improved yes. um, and cost was improved. So now we're pushing the envelope. We're saying that low-risk patients Mm -hmm. uh, may be a benefit as well. But, you know, these are people who were deemed to be people who needed a tissue valve. So the conclusion, this is really pushing the envelope a lot. The, the people who were involved in the study said, this should be the treatment of choice and surgery should only be for people who they felt that the TAVI was not appropriate. And there aren't many. Maybe people have difficult femoral access, people who have an eccentric or athero very atherosclerotic or calcified um, aortic root, or people where maybe they can't approach, but there's very few. And those things can be picked up um, during the imaging beforehand and at the discussion by the heart team. So let me tell you a little anecdote. Um, some of you may know this man, I won't mention his name, 75 years of age, the lead singer of one of the most famous rock bands in the world. Uh, he's still performing at age, he's now, he had a tavi in uh, 2018. Uh, he was 75 at the time, and they're still performing, and he's almost 80 now, so you probably know who I'm talking about. And uh, he had severe aortic stenosis, and he was given the option of having a transcutaneous aortic valve implantation, a TAVI, or having his chest cracked in half, having an endotracheal tube inserted uh, in probably you know, one or two nights intensive care in hospital for 10 days versus being out of hospital uh, one or two days, uh, probably one day later, no tubes down his throat, no cracking his chest open. And he just said, this is a no-brainer. Yeah. And so he had a tabby. He was back performing with his band uh, within a week <laughs> compared to you know, still being intensive, you know, in hospital or intensive care a week later. So this is a, a game changer. And, and now, let me say, I'm sure you're not 75 years of age yet, David, but um, if you had severe aortic stenosis, which would you prefer? Would you prefer someone to crack your chest open, put a tube down, have you in intensive care with a high chance of um, perioperative uh, complications, whether it be stroke, uh, whether it be uh, all the usual things we have with, with thoracomities, hemothorax, uh, hemothorax, atrial fibrillation, things like that. Um, or would you prefer to have something done transcutaneously and be home in a, a day or two and just with um, a, a bruise in your groin? I, I know which way I'd like to go. What an amazing difference, Andrew. Speaking of um, atrial fib, um, does it occur with TAVI or is it a much lower risk? 
um, atrial fibrillation with with uh, any cardiothoracic surgery is about thirty percent. With mm-hmm. valve surgery, it's higher, up mm-hmm. to fifty percent of patients um, with any uh, valvular surgery, whether it be mitral or aortic valve replacement, have atrial fibrillation. Often it's only temporary, and uh, about one in ten of the atrial fibrillation episodes don't respond to medical therapy, and they have a cardioversion before they go home. But with TAVI, it's it's actually very rare because you're, wow. you're not um, mucking around with uh, their hearts and and putting them on cardiopulmonary bypass. It's actually the other way around. This is something I did want to mention that because you're putting in um, a, a giant metal cage in the aortic root, and then you're expanding it. Right next to the um, AV node, there is a significant incidence of complete heart block. So at least one third of patients will require a pacemaker after a TAVI, which is why they they monitor them for um for a couple of days after the procedure is done to see if they go into complete heart block. So um, some studies report uh, up to half of patients uh, require a pacemaker, but yeah, you know, we're getting better at it. so around a third will require a pacemaker, particularly if they've got underlying conduction disease already, whether it be left bundle branch block or PR, uh, PR prolongation, so first degree heart block. Those patients may require a pacemaker. Uh, post-procedure. And then we warn the patients of that beforehand. Remember, these are elderly patients who have risk of, of requiring a, a, a pacemaker anyway. So that's that's one of the, the complications that does happen. Other things uh, similar to surgical aortic valve implantation, they do need um, bacterial endocarditis prophylaxis and you know, the risk of endocarditis because you're putting in a large amount of prosthetic tissue in the aortic root. Um, and so, you know, dental procedures or any surgical procedures like that, they they need to um, have endocarditis prophylaxis afterwards, and and obviously um, femoral aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms you have to watch for, um, like with any transcatheter procedure. It's a large catheter, you know, it's it's um it's almost as big as your your little finger. But those are the the main things to, to be aware of. But I'm sure many general practitioners will have their patients um, coming back uh, after having seen the cardiologist, rather than having their their chest cracked in half, they'll have um they'll have this TAVI and, and they'll have to be aware of it. Now, this is really important because uh, HealthEd did a survey of uh, over 500 general practitioners mm-hmm. and they actually found that 25% of them, of the GPs had never even heard of TAVI. But this is a revolution and the GPs really do have to know about this because this is now mainstream medicine. This is um, you know, what we're going to be seeing every day. This is the way of the future. And, and like I said, if I had um, aortic stenosis I would much rather have a transcutaneous procedure rather than um, uh, a procedure where they crack my chest in half. And where you get uh, such a quick recovery uh, home in a day or two rather than staying in hospital for 10 to 14 days uh, where you're up singing with your rock and roll band a week later, that's that's just, just amazing. Andrew, this just sounds most wonderful. A couple of questions come to mind. You've got a tissue valve, that's good, but you've got a nice big metal cage. So are these patients requiring lifelong anticoagulation? So that's, again, um, something we've been looking into quite carefully. And at the moment, uh, the indica- the recommendation is that they have um, anticoagulation maybe for a month, maybe three months, depending on um, the, the preference of the uh, structural interventionalist, but often uh, very short term. And then they have plain old aspirin long term. That's all. So there have been studies looking at long term, no actually showed more bleeding. There's also been studies looking at dual antiplatelet therapy with um, uh, ticagrelor or, or clopidogrel on top of the aspirin again showed more bleeding. So it's just aspirin afterwards, basically. Right. And, and I suspect you know, it's been 18 years now. Uh, you have enough data on strokes to, to know that it's probably not necessary. Huh? 
That's that's right. There's more bleeding with the um the NOAX or the dual antiplatelet therapy compared to aspirin alone. And strokes can occur early, early, early. So during the hospital stay, if you know, when the um the uh, expandable uh, metal cage is deployed if mm-hmm. it dislodges some atheroma or some um, calcium in the uh, aortic root or proximal ACE in the aorta that can go can north cause strokes but after that the the risk is uh yeah is particularly low and probably similar uh, to surgical uh, aortic valve replacement or to to the general cohort of people who, who don't have anything wrong with them that just sounds wonderful, Andrew. Now, I've got one other quick question, and this is that uh, one third of the patients who may require a pacemaker. It almost sounds as if if we are going to talk to the patient about TAVI, this might need to be a discussion at the general practice level about that one third complication where they may have to end up with a pacemaker and not freak out when they do. I, I do mention that that's that's one of the complications, but it's it's only a third. So the easy way to to do this is hopefully most general practitioners will do an ECG on their patient, and you can look for those things I was talking about: first degree heart block, left bundle branch block. If they've got atrial fibrillation already, um, that does slightly increase the risk of requiring a pacemaker because of the variable ventricular response to the atrial fibrillation. So those are the sorts of signs that you might think this patient might need it more frequently. But as a GP the GP is not going to be the one making the decision about whether they go for TAVI or whether they go for surgery. And right. neither am I. It's it's a team decision. I think that's the beauty of it, that right. there's this team decision being made. And once they've been really channeled into that pathway that they're going to have the TAVI, then um, I, that's probably the time. So I, I don't want to scare them. And again, it's two-thirds of chance they're not going to have a, a pacemaker. So that's that's the other side of the coin. So I think you know, just take it one step at a time. It's uncommon for a patient to say, I don't want to have anything done. I have had a few. I say, but look, this is not an operation. They say, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to just um, you know, go along the way I am and uh, I take my chances. Uh, you know, they're, they're often elderly, and they say, "All my friends have passed away. You know, I've, all my relatives who are my age have all gone. So I'm happy to just be managed conservatively." And that really means they've they've got a fifty percent chance of being dead at two years. And I say that to them. But you know, people with other comorbidities that that would previously have been contraindications, like I said, lung disease. Uh, you know, moderate renal impairment, even some cancers. If they think their prognosis is more than five years, then um, then these are now no longer barriers to mm. to giving life changing treatment because there is no drug that's going to change the fact you've got a pinhole where all of the blood is, is going to the whole body. And, and that's the that's the thing that uh, the the aortic valve is is reducing blood flow everywhere, and mm. people don't realise how sick they feel until you fix it, and they go, "Wow." I feel so much better. And it's a, an insidious condition. And it's only once you you treat the aortic valve uh, with this that you, you realize how much of a difference there is. Let me just tell you one more piece of information. And this is from a group called NEDA, the National Echo Database of Australia, NEDA. And they looked at over 2 million people having echocardiograms. This is megadata now. So most of the large units doing echoes in Australia now um, contribute to this database. And what they've found is that if you have someone with um, moderate to severe aortic stenosis, not severe, but moderate to severe, that their prognosis uh, really is, is quite poor. And so it's, it's worse than we thought. And so it behoves us now to think about patients with aortic stenosis, uh, like people with cancer, that they need to be um, treated early to reduce the risks of complications of aortic stenosis and to be able to give treatments which can help them take a detour in their cardiovascular journey.
Andrew, I'm sure many of our listeners will be wanting to review all our patients with a murmur and ensure that they've been investigated. It is a really big relief to know that you've got a team, a heart team now making all the calls and informing our patients instead of us having to make a call. And just knowing how much safer this surgery is and how much better their lives will be both in terms of longevity and quality. It's just most wonderful thing to be, if you like, to have available to us. Uh, we do think about the cost as there will be a number of patients, of course, who won't be able to afford this. And again, it, it's up to your heart team to decide uh, what to do with them, you know, whether or not they might need surgery. Andrew, I just wonder whether or not there are some key messages you have for our listeners. I think the first thing is that the general practitioners should be listening to the patient's hearts. Everyone over the age of 65 and definitely everyone over the age of 75, the general practitioners should be listening to the patient's heart on a regular basis, number one. The next thing is if you hear a murmur, um, suspect aortic stenosis, if that's a systolic murmur, and refer, either refer for an echocardiogram um, or to see a cardiologist. In the knowledge that we now have um, these revolutionary uh, treatments which can be used to treat people with aortic stenosis that were not available eight or ten years ago and so it's really an exciting time but if you don't look if you don't listen then uh, you won't pick it up and these are things that could really save your patients lives it's always been good to talk to you Andrew again I've learned so much from you and I'm sure a lot of my peers would have learned much as well thanks very much David and uh, thanks everyone for listening it's always great to talk to you have a great day Andrew you too David just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.